Now, I've been in this situation many, many, many times where people just laugh you out of the room and going, who are you to tell me, you know, that you solved my life's work? And we did. We did say, you, you, you know, you brought it all the way to here, but not quite there. And we think this is the answer. This is the final piece of the puzzle. And that moment gave us a chance to sign our first deal with a major pharmaceutical company called Merck. I remember walking down the street when that deal was signed and going, oh my Lord, we have a deal with Merck. And I mean, I still have it. You know, there was a frame behind me. They paid us uh, back in 2010, 2011, a million and a quarter, like $1.25 million upfront for not even what we call a band on a gel, just a computational solution. I, I, I was besides myself. And it was at that moment that it wasn't just some pharma executive saying you're good. We had a god of science telling us, I think you've done something. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Dr. Tehrani is a co-founder of Zymeworks and served as its president and chief executive officer from inception in 2003 until 2022. He's been an integral part of many of Zymeworks' corporate achievements, including raising seed and angel financing and overseeing technical operations and patent filings. Dr. Tehrani is a member of the board of directors at Creatus Biosciences Incorporated and Biotech Canada. He has also served as a board director for CQDM, Life Sciences British Columbia, and the MyTax Industrial Advisory Board. From 2016 to 2018, he was a member of British Columbia's Premier's Technology Council. Ali, welcome to Reboot Health. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm truly honored, as I said before we started. I'm, I'm really excited to kind of get into this. We're going to touch on, or I'd like to at least touch on several topics with you today. One is biotech talent in Canada. I think I've heard you talk about it many times, and, and you seem really very passionate about that. So I want to sort of double click on that. I want to talk about the ecosystem itself. And then I'm going, to call, I'm going to call the last portion sort of a Dear Ali component, which is reflections and advice for future sure. founders. Sure. All right. So, so maybe just start out. I know I gave a very brief bio, and it probably doesn't nearly do you justice. But maybe you could start out by sort of explaining to the listeners of sort of a high-level arc of your career and what led you to sort of health innovation and specifically founding a biotechnology venture. And, and just for context... This was back in the 90s, right? Where it's kind of fashionable yeah. now. You did this two decades ago. So I think that would be a really interesting story if you would. Cool. Uh, well, by telling my story, I'm hoping to inspire others. I'm hoping to inspire those that are sitting on the sidelines and they have come up with a million reasons why not to do it. That they're self-editing, that they are scared, that they have people in their lives telling them it's not for you. 
So let's take a half step back about me um, to hopefully inspire those who need a little bit of a push. I went to University of Massachusetts Amherst for my uh, bachelor's and master's in biochemistry. And let me put it this way. I was not a, uh, a student. I was not even a B student. Uh, if you know the U.S. system, I was a solid 2.5 GPA that had aspirations of somehow miraculously that being acceptable to medical schools. And as you would guess it, and hopefully we all have faith in the medical system, <laughs> they did not let me in. Thank goodness for that. Um, and I remember one faithful day when my last rejection application came for medical school, my master's uh, supervisor came to me and said, listen, I don't think this medical uh, school thing is for you. I've uh, contacted someone in a place called Vancouver, British Columbia, that um, is willing to accept you to go into a PhD program. That's where you belong. And of course, me being me in my head, I'm like, oh, this could be a great way to, you know, get a couple of years under my belt and then reapply. I was not getting the message that I was not meant to go to medical school. And, you know, if you were to ask me today why I want to go to medical school, it's because my parents told me to. Because uh, every kid that comes out of a Persian heritage or a Middle Eastern heritage has to be a doctor, has to be a lawyer, or they're a failure. So I'm like, okay, this is the way I'm going to make them proud. And there's your first problem of not knowing who you are and constantly trying to please your parents. Long story short, I decided to leave this place called Amherst near Boston in the United States in Massachusetts and come to a place called Vancouver. Never been to Canada. Didn't know where British Columbia was. All I heard was Vancouver is really pretty. Uh, I came August 27th, 1997. And when I came here... I'm like, what the hell have I done? Sorry, forgive me. Uh, what the heck have I done? And I've left that place for this place. And then I regretted those words about a month later. I fell in love with Vancouver. I fell in love with UBC. I fell in love with everything I was doing. And I realized I had spent six, seven years getting a bachelor's and master's and just memorizing books, just getting by. And then within the first year of being in the PhD program, I met those who really belonged in grad school, those who were worthy of being in UBC microbiology. And that is when my eyes opened, that there are those who feel science, who get science, who can solve it, and they're going to change the world. But you know what, Imo? They don't like to talk about it. They are shy. They're aloof. They want to hide in their labs and they want to write their papers and they don't want to say anything. They don't want to really have that big global impact by themselves. They just want to publish it. And there are those like me who like the sound of their own voice. It might not be a pretty voice, but they definitely like the sound of their own voice and you can't make them shut up. So it was at that moment in grad school that I realized, okay, I can do this. I can get my PhD. I can redo, undo, relearn everything that I was supposed to do during my bachelor's and master's. I'm going to do this. 
but I'm going to do those who understand science proud. I am going to be their voice. I am going to be their way to make a difference. And in that was the start of Zymeworks. And in that was me surrounding myself with, by some of the most brilliant scientists that I ever met, all Canadian and all from different parts of the world coming to Canada and going, why don't we do something? My talents plus your smarts. I speak your language. I can convey a message in your language. I can write a message in your language. And we started Zymeworks. And the basic premise in, in Zymeworks was back in the early 2000s was how do we engineer a drug versus make an educated guess at a drug? Everything we do today is engineered. Everything from our food to our clothes to our technology, except drug design, except pharmaceuticals. It's still back in the 1800s. Guess, guess, guess. Look, in the world of drug design, if a drug works 40, 50 percent of the time, it's a home run. It's like baseball. Someone that bats 0.3 will make millions. But that means three out of 10 times you're batting and you're hitting. The other seven times you're striking out. And what we wanted to do and what we are doing and did at Zymeworks is to bring an engineering aspect to it. We were the tech of biotech, not the bio of tech. And that's how we started a little paradigm shift. And now in 2021, there is .ai, .ai, .ai everywhere. But I'm from the world of the Pentium, the 386 and the 486. Not today. So I'll wrap up here for you to say, if a 2.5 GPA student could end up raising 750 million plus for a biotech company, anyone can. That's fantastic. There, there's a whole bunch of things in there, which, which I'm going to unwrap, but, but I want to do it sort of in a certain sequence. What is fascinating, you know, the whole story is fascinating, but what I find interesting now in 2022 is you were in Amherst, Massachusetts. When you got tapped on the shoulder, why didn't you look at Boston? You know, my supervisor was someone who changed my life. And in throughout my life, there have been these one or two or three individuals that saved me. Uh, one of which is my wife. Without my wife, I would be one lost idiot. And before that, it was, it was my supervisor who uh, thankfully understood where my talent was and it, where it wasn't. And I did have a job offer in, in Boston. In fact, the person that offered me a job ended up finding two companies, each worth about seven to $8 billion. And years later, we ran into each other and he said, you were the, one of the only people who ever turned down a job offer from me. So call it instinct, call it luck, call it uh, a moment where you could very easily do something different. But thank goodness, I ended up here. I found home. I found my family. I found my passion. Yeah. And I can die peacefully. Hopefully that's not for a long time and we're glad you came. <laughs> that's for sure. So, so you, you touched 
briefly on what Zyme works. Maybe you can go a little bit deeper without sort of going um, too deep into the science, but but maybe sort of, so it's a platform company. Tell us a little bit about more sort of, at least in the early days, what, what was it sort of set out to do? How did it start? What were your sort of key inflection points? And is that kind of the same, you know, you're, you, again, you've been in this for two decades. Is, is Did it turn out where you expected? It turned out better? The roadmap looks very different? Oh, some uh, color it, to that. It turned out, you know, a thousand times better. Okay. We have two drugs in clinical trials. One of them is in multiple phase threes. One of them has already shown benefit to cancer patients. I mean, there is nothing more gratifying in this world to know that you've helped someone that is scared, that is terrified, that doesn't want to die. And you, you were able to, as we said, our mission is to send patients back home to their loved ones disease-free. To be able to give people, a mom, a dad, a sister, a brother, a chance to be with their loved ones and not in a hospital. Now, in not so technical terms, but more specific terms, what we set out to do at Zymeworks is to understand the structure of proteins. Mm -hmm. Proteins enable us to live. There is a protein for everything that makes us human and, and enables us to function. So by understanding the structure of proteins and how that structure dictates the function, kind of like your, your neighborhood uh, handy person that comes in and can fix anything in your house so long as they can see it, touch it, mm -hmm. know where the problem is. If you can understand the structure, function, relationship of a protein, you can ask questions. This is responsible for that. So if I change it, theoretically, this should happen. And up to sort of companies like us, that wasn't the case. It was like scientists with blinders on going, you know, a pinch more or a pinch less. I hope it doesn't kill anyone. In fact, I hope it helps people. But that's not how you want your electrician to work. You don't want your electrician to go, I'm not sure what this wire does. So I'm just going to pull it out of here and connect it to this. And hopefully your that's oven will turn on. Or I'm not sure what this pipe does. So I'm just going to hammer on top of it and break it not knowing what the damage is. We went at Zymeworks understanding proteins and getting into protein engineering, mm -hmm. adding a function, deleting a function, halting a function, interacting with other proteins. We wanted to tell proteins what to do but and not guess. And we were successful at it. We built platforms that enable other pharma companies do that. We enabled our own drug development and I think this is going to be something that's going to go on for a long time. We were part of a paradigm change in drug development. When did you realize, you know, and I think, I think every founder believes they have sort of the, you know, the next best thing. When did you realize, when did you get feedback that you were onto something? When did you get lift off? Like when, was there a moment or moments that you kind of said, wow, we, this is it, that, that we're ready to go? Or, or was it just something that evolved it, gradually? It was, um, it was back in 2010 when we sat in front of one of the gods of protein engineering at Genentech Roche, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, if not the largest. And we showed him the solution to the problem he couldn't solve. Now, I've been in this situation many, many, many times where people just laugh you out of the room and going, who are you? to tell me, you know, that you solved my life's work. And we did. 
we did say you 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 know you brought it all the way to here but not quite there and we think this is the answer this is the final piece of the puzzle and that moment gave us a chance to sign our first deal with a major pharmaceutical company called Merck i remember walking down the street when that deal was signed and going oh my lord we have a deal with Merck and I mean, I still have it, you know, there was a frame behind me. They paid us uh, back in 2010, 2011, a million and a quarter, like $1.25 million up front for uh, not even what we call a band on a gel, just a computational solution. And uh, I, mean, I, I was besides myself. And it was at that moment that it wasn't just some pharma executive saying you're good. We had a god of science telling us, I think you've done something. It's kind of like goodwill hunting where the you know the kid <laughs> is who's kind of you know a nobody yeah, you know yeah. comes into the room and solves a math equation and the professor is you know dumbfounded just yeah. at all. That was the moment. Interesting. That's fascinating. That's 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 what a wonderful story. I want to talk, and, and I've heard you talk several times, as I as I sort of said at the beginning, um, and I know you've given me talks. Talent seems to come up several times. Um, diversity, which I'm going to use a word that I'm going to you may disagree with, it, and I'm happy to sort of talk about that. Sort of diversity, which I think is a bit of a loaded word these days. Uh, you know, depending on how you use it, where you use it. How do you see diversity of talent contributing to science? and the business of, of biotechnology. And in particular, I'm really curious about is, can, can Canada use this as a competitive advantage for the industry? Or, or, or what's, what's your sense of that? So diversity so, and talent. Uh, you know, I've often sat back and thought about the word diversity. To me, there is diversity within our communities and within our schools and within our lives. And then when it comes to the work environment, I view it with a slightly different lens. I view diversity as being rooted in different cultural upbringings. Uh, a person coming from uh, an Asian heritage, coming from the indigenous heritage, coming from the Canadian African or uh, um, African American, coming from Middle East, that cultural heritage gives you uh, a point of view in pro solving a problem, how to be a team player, how to be patient, how to be polite, how to not to be rude, how to listen, how to collaborate, how to care. So for me, in the work environment, having diverse backgrounds, diverse upbringings, gives you one extra shot at solving a problem. If you all came from one upbringing where you looked at the world from one lens, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether you're white or black or male or female or this race or that race, the way you're gonna look at the world is the same. Whereas if you came from different ways, as someone who's traveled the world, I've seen many cultures, and that is so important to how they solve a problem and how they are respectful, they know when to speak, they know how to collaborate, how to care, that's diversity. 
Now, it doesn't matter whether you're XX or XY chromosome or what the pigmentation on your skin is. If the pigmentation is lighter or darker, it doesn't make you nicer or ruder. But your upbringing, your soul, the food you ate, where you walked, your, your family gatherings, your holidays, that is what shapes you. And yeah, of course, you know, your, your hormones dictate your behavior, but men get just as angry as women and women get more angry than men at different times. Like we, we're human beings. We, we will, we're dictated by our hormones. It's your cultural upbringing that is really key. How do founders, how do founders hire for that? When you're building a team, are there certain signals that you looked for, for that? Like, like, like when they... You know, there's a balancing act. And I'm just wondering, you know, when you're trying to build a team early on, when you want diversity. A, a, a bit of a pop culture, maybe a little bit of a stupid answer. The show, The Voice, yep. is, is a game changer. Because you can ask the, the same people. They have no idea if the voice they're listening to, uh, what who the person is. They can't look at their eyes. It's the eyes that deceive. They just have to listen with their ears and they have to look for different, very specific characteristics. So you, you, there is no formula to hire other than spending time with an individual and seeing that if you can see inside of them, if you could really go, you know what? I could see leaving my office door open with my wallet there, actually having my kids there and saying, hey, Billy, or hey, Jeannie, can you look after my kids for a second while I run down and do something? If you can't trust, mm -hmm. That's true. you can't, you, you've already lost. And I know there are companies out there that put layer after layer after layer of security internally. Well, if you can't trust the person you hired, then what's the point? It's like being in a relationship and going, you know, sweetie, I have a whole bunch of secrets and passwords that I just simply cannot share. It's like that Seinfeld episode with a pin number. <laughs> no, that's great. So do we have an advantage in Canada in that then? We most certainly do. Yeah. Without a doubt we do because Canada is a, is a collective of cultural centers. I look at where I live in Vancouver and you have a big Asian community. You have a big Indo-Canadian community. You have Greeks, you have Italians. And, and then you look at Toronto and that's even bigger. We have to celebrate that. We have to embrace that. We live in a world where we benefit from so many different backgrounds as opposed to exclude them and go, you know, you're not like me. That's an advantage. And, you know, I, whether you are a conservative or a liberal or an NDP or whatever it is, look at our cabinet. Mm -hmm. That's all I have to say. Look at the past cabinets. Right. Let's talk about another, I'm not going to say related, but, it, but it's another lament. As, as I talk to different stakeholders in the biotech ecosystem, there seems to be a constant lament from founders and capital allocators that we don't have the talent to really power biotechnology ventures at scale. Sure, there's great scientists, or there's, or there's some small ventures that create, but we don't have sort of the horsepower, if you will, to take it to scale. 
And I've heard you talk about a distinction, which I think is interesting, between expertise versus experience. Yep. And I'm wondering, how do we start to attract the latter quality that is experience? So we stop talking about this gap and we actually do something about it. And before you say, I'm just wondering, maybe we're already there, right? Maybe we have enough demand. Oh, I'm curious oh, about that, your, your perspective. You're on something. So it is happening. You look at the last five years and the number of biotech companies in Vancouver alone that went north of you know $500 million market cap. Mm-hmm. You look at the tech companies that went north of a billion. You look at, again, biotech and north of a billion to two billion. I know we're going through a little bit of a market volatility right now, but you're creating a class of founders that have a love for Canada. And these folks want to continue doing and, and mentoring. So that's already happening. Mm-hmm. And then the last U.S. administration was driving a lot of folks to Canada, a lot of expats. They were coming back home, especially if there was going to be another four years on top of that. So part of it is happening. The other part of it is recognizing that we need to do more. I constantly remind the federal folks and even the provincial folks that it's not dollars that move the future. It is people that create the path to the dollars who hire, who reinvest. You could put, you know, a billion dollars into a, an idea that doesn't have the right leaders, doesn't have the right people, and it still won't go anywhere. But put a fraction of that in the right hands and see what happens. I don't want to, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Do you think the capital allocators just need to take a little bit more sort of bold bets on young experienced, sorry, just to be clear, young biotech founders with, with maybe, Absolutely. yeah. And that's my job. That's what I do now. That's okay. what I am in post my, you know, 18 years at Zymorks. What I'm passionate about, what I spend my mornings and days is to look for those opportunities that what I call the overlooked, the unusual suspects. Hmm. Okay. And just because they don't come from Harvard or they don't come from, Oxford, or they don't come from MIT, that doesn't mean their idea is wrong. Look at Shopify. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at 1Password. Look at Abcelera. There is, there is something to be said about being, somebody's got to shake things up. And I'm willing to be that person. I'm that. quite happy in that role. Great. Got some things to talk to you then. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in this for, and again, I know I've said it already, but two decades. The last part of ecosystem, again, the constant lament is is capital. How have you seen the capital landscape change, Ali, over the last sort of two decades? I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, where I think most people would say we're better, but are we are we are we quote unquote there wherever there is? Um, do we still have a problem on capital, or again, maybe we're right sized for our ecosystem today? And, and we, maybe- we don't have a problem with capital. And I know I'm going to get a lot of people mad at me, but look, in just the last three years, I was able to raise close to five hundred million dollars. Just say that a couple of times: five hundred million dollars in three years. And then it's not because I'm great or I'm a genius. You look at you know Carl at at Abcelera. You look at the mm-hmm. folks at Precision Nanosystem. You look at all the IPOs that happen on the TSA, you look at one password again, mm-hmm. right? 
I think that there is the those who want to do and who want to pay their dues and those who want it to drop on their lap. So if you're doing the work, no, there is no capital problem. Right. Yeah, the markets are, are going crazy right now, but they won't stay down like this. Look at every time in history where the markets went down and you look at how long they stayed down and how long it took for them to rebound and how well they rebounded. Yeah. It's going to happen again. You're not going to stop this, but do you, how do you look at sort of foreign capital for early stage investments? And, and what I'm getting here is, is if that happens really early on, let's just say they're a seed, do we lose these biotech founders, do you think? Or, or they're just, you know, most of them are going to stay, the capital is going to, you know, the capital is going to flow where the capital is going to flow. I mean, it's, you know, uh, there was a, a time where the notion was <clears throat> if you take U.S. capital, they're going to move you, you know, to the U.S. eventually. No, it, in 18 years, we never moved. And we had investors from all over the world, from U.S., from East Coast, from Europe. Um, it comes down to your resolve. And if you are set on where you wanting to be and what you believe, things happen. Look, uh, Microsoft put a town on the map that no one cared about. Cisco put a town on a map that no one cared about. People, Amazon did the same. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is possible to do this. I often, you know, over the years, I've always told myself, does fear rule you or do you control fear? And I've never allowed myself as much as possible to give in to fear. And there's always going to be a lot of folks around you that whisper fear. Aren't you afraid of that? Mm -hmm. Aren't you afraid? Anyone who ever opens a sentence with, aren't you afraid of that? Pause and think about that for a second. Fear is the enemy of progress, but fear is also necessary to keep you on your toes so you don't get arrogant. Like somebody said, so a little paranoia is always good. Yeah. So, if, so Ali, if you could, if you could wave a magic wand and, and change anything about the Canadian biotechnology ecosystem immediately, what key areas would notice a meaningful difference after you wave that wand? And 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 that includes maybe nothing at all. But, but if you had your going goals. for it, we are starting to do that. But for the longest time, we we were resolved at just being good enough, uh, getting the, the sort of a, a, a ribbon for, for trying mm -hmm. and getting something off the ground and then going, Hey, you know what? Hopefully I'll get bought or hopefully I'm, I'm there before I make it big enough before I get to scale. So and it is changing people are giving themselves permission to be successful. People are giving themselves permission to be ambitious, to think outside of the box, to push it. You look at a, a, the, the nation of Israel, a, a nation of 6 million people who constantly punch above their weight in anything. You name it, they punch above their weight. We're a nation of 30 million plus, and we go, well, can I punch a little bit below my weight? Where do you think that comes from? Like, like uh, it's, it's nothing new. It's just culture. 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 
your upbringing. Look at the, the, the geography of the Middle East. Look at the, the battles, the history of that area for thousands of years. From the Romans to the Persian Empire to the Ottoman Empire. They have tenacity in their blood. And now that you have a lot of people from Israel, from Iran, from India, from China, from Hong Kong, from Italy here, they're going to bring that energy here. Right. Tenacity, ferociousness. Mm -hmm. Let's go for it. And I suspect seeing some of the big players like Zymergs, like the Absalaras, like the Repair, probably doesn't hurt as well, right? To, yeah. to, to see that, hey, it can be done here, right? It can be done. Yeah. Because this has been a world of naysayers and go, it can't be done. Well, give me an example. Give me one example. And then when you give them one example, like, yeah, pff, that's just a one-off. Now, two, three, four, five. Yeah. And you realize it's not outliers. We chatted a little bit about it at the beginning. How do you think of entrepreneurship? Like that word is such a loaded word, right? It, it's again, I'm going to go back to your journey two decades ago. It wasn't that sexy unless maybe you were in a dot-com business to be an entrepreneur. Now everyone wants to be an entrepreneur in every domain. Well, it's a, it's a Shark Tank world, right? In, in Shark Tank or in the Dragon's Den world, everyone is a CEO and everyone is an entrepreneur. In, in some respects, they all are. But the essence for me, as I describe an entrepreneur, is someone who's dreaming, who doesn't understand the word no, or it can't be done, or you're not good enough. And someone who does not self-edit, that they don't sit back in every day and go, I'm going to fail, I'm going to lose. So they're always going to make it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an individual trait or is that something that you can you know we can teach people in university like, like I again think, i know you about the culture piece i'm just curious i don't think you can teach it mm. i think it's a, i think it's a genetic disease okay got it i think it's something that people uh whether it is learned at a very early age uh there are people each if you actually go to the neuroscience of it uh, whether you are a right hemisphere or a left hemisphere and then different parts of the brain, you have folks that are very, very analytical, mm -hmm. folks that analyze everything and they need to see clear quantity. They're, they're about quantifying things. There are people that are about qualitative things. And I think it is, it is we are wired in a way where you, you, you look at a challenge differently, your risk tolerance is very different. And if you're lucky enough to be surrounded with the right mentors, with the right teachers, you, you may blossom. The, the analogy that I use is that no matter what age you would have put me with Itzhak Perlman, one of the best violinists of all time, I would have still played the violin as if it's a cat in heat. <laughs> right. Because I'm not designed. I, my brain was not designed like his is, like my son is. My son has 
a very interesting musical ability and he almost has photographic memory. We're not designed the same and that's okay. So what advice do you give sort of to young individuals? Like if, you, if you're, if you've got a crowd, you obviously don't know who they are. It, you know, you see everyone, you know, there's some people say everybody should go into entrepreneurship period, end of story. Others who sort of, you know, believe it on the other side, say it's too risky. It, it is high risk. It's not meant for everyone. What advice would you give? Obviously specific to biotech. So if you're with a bunch of graduate students, you're giving a talk, comes on business entrepreneurship. Is there, is there anything sort of parting yeah. words you would give for making sure the right person gets to where they really get to something that's meaningful for them? I think first and foremost, everyone should sit back and ask themselves, why are they interested in entrepreneurship or wanting to be in, in sort of business? Is it for money? I want to do this because I want to make more money. If the answer is yes, you're already failing. That's a good point. The purpose, the mission for which you do something, kind of like my medical school story, right. has to be very clear. I was doing it for my parents, not me. Right. I was doing it because I thought it would give me status. It would get me respect. It didn't. Mm -hmm. So if you really believe in something that you can do that changes the world, that helps someone, that changes the quality of life, then you're on the right path. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Microfinancing, kitchen, arts. Look, in arts, if, if you have a piece of music, a piece of drawing, a poem, a story that invokes feelings, anger, tears, happiness, sadness, you got talent. But if you're forgettable, you have no talent there. So my advice to everyone is take a step back and really go, why do I want to do this? Am I trying to satisfy someone? Am I trying to make more money? Because there are much easier ways to make money. Look at, look at the folks in, in YouTube land. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's a bad premise to start out with for sure bad premise. You, you post a lot on LinkedIn. Yeah. One that particularly caught my eye was, was <laughs> the last dance on Netflix about Michael Jordan. I mean, I, I saw that I was impressed by every series by, um, by every episode rather, not only because of basketball, but what, what really, uh, Ali, what really, you know, what, what I think we don't see and we never did see before was Jordan's ability to lead his teams at various points in the journey. I don't right. think everyone was looking at the basketball, but it wasn't sort of what happened behind the scenes. And I think this was a really interesting part. What did you get out of that documentary? And in particular, what, what did you apply to sort of your management and leadership style? Were there any things that like, like that was such a rich documentary? I, I truly enjoyed it. I'm just curious how it I, you. Um, the, the moment that stuck a lot with me from that documentary was the disconnect between ownership and the team players and mm -hmm. the, the notion of going for the sixth championship, that oh, they were goodness. all willing to come back together that they were willing to play one more and they would have probably won and they would have all taken less money. But then there is again, the concept of fear, ownership, thought, bunch of old guys, bunch of injuries. Why don't we just go rebuild and do this without them? Hmm. 
And what Michael Jordan showed is how much more he had left in his knees. Pippen went on and, and had more. Rodman went on and had more. Kukoc had more. Paxton had more. And the second thing out of that series was tenacity. Right. And then, of course, the ego that Pippen was showing. Yes, yeah. So there were a lot of lessons that would draw directly to business, to teams, to ambition, to board of directors, to your shareholders, and disconnect and connect. Yeah. The one thing that resonated with me, and I'd love to hear your sense on, this is not necessarily biotechnology, but it is, it is management. I think it's about growing companies is to me, he had such a strong resolve to demonstrate first and ask people to follow later. I think that's been lost in management in, you know, to a certain you extent. What's your, you what's bet. your sense of that? Uh, I have to give a talk on Wednesday on leadership. And, you know, as I was sitting back and thinking about this, it comes back to the good old sayings that people say, you either lead from the front yeah. or you lead from the back. And the greatest generals of all time have been always in the front. They fought side by side with their soldiers. And to me, if, if you are sitting somewhere remote and theorizing, there is a place for you. You're called a strategist. But a leader... Right. has to be there, has to inspire, has to be the one that everyone feeds off of. Mm -hmm. And a leader is the person that is exhausted at the end of the day because he or she puts so much out there for people to hang on to, to, to uplift them, to empower them, to inspire them to show them, and also they did their work too. Yeah. Versus someone that just sits in the back and just spews orders. That's not inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that, that was sort of the biggest, uh, I think you, you saw it in every episode, right? So it's it phenomenal. You, talk, you, talk, Ali, you talked a little bit about earlier Zymeworks and, and we're moving from you know, you said it, I've heard it, we've seen it before from sort of a big B biotechnology to a little B, big T, meaning the technology now is front and center. You know, I, I, I sort of like this, and I've heard this before, it's we're moving from the world of discovery in biotechnology to the world of design. Yeah. We don't need to look for it, we're designing yep. it. What is, tell maybe the listeners, what does this mean for the industry as a whole? What does it mean for new venture formation? And ultimately, most importantly, what all biotechnology companies are doing is for healthcare. What does it, what does it mean for, for that trajectory? I think you're, you're in a dawn of a new era. You're coming to a time where um, people don't have to die. Hmm. It will take time. You will also find the, the notion of personalized medicine making a lot more sense. You are a male, I'm a male, but we are two very different individuals. The makeup of our bodies are very different. For a hundred years, we've been saying, okay, he's male, he's male, give this, because they're both male, it should work. 
But personalized medicine says design something that works much more efficaciously, much more readily in a smaller subset of people yeah. than something that works less efficaciously in a larger set of people, which goes against economics, right? Because you want to build something, you want to find that silver bullet. Yeah. But the world you're getting to is a world you saw in Star Trek, a world you saw in, in sci-fi where you individually will be addressed as opposed to your clan. So as we move more from what I'm going to call uh, the blockbuster drug world, the Pfizer's and the Eli Lilly's and looking for, as you said, things that work on large pop, and when I say work, I have my fingers in quotes, work on large populations versus let's call them bespoke drugs, therapeutics. What, what is, what do you think the industry looks like? Do we, do we lose big pharma? Do, do ventures now kind of own their own domains because they don't need to necessarily become or have the distribution channels of Pfizer's and Eli's and GSK's and all those? Like, what's your sense yeah, of that? Well, you, you see a world similar to Alphabet, similar to the world that Johnson & Johnson uh, has created. Johnson & Johnson is a conglomerate of companies. GSK is a conglomerate of companies. And you know now you have Alphabet that owns Boston Robotics and Google and probably many things that you and I don't know about. Yeah. So you're going to see the, the big department stores that we used to know as Kmart mm -hmm. and Walmart and whatever, all starting to get smaller or, or there's a family entity or, or a multinational that owns different pieces. At least that's my guess. Mm -hmm. That's because we've also realized something, a concept that it was realized in the military you don't need large armies anymore. Yeah. You need elite units that are under the same flag, that are smaller. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve soldiers. Whereas I think in the Napoleon era or even the World War II era, it's like, okay, infantry, right. you know, six thousand soldiers or fifty thousand soldiers. They don't they don't work like that anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not effective. And and we're, I mean, I don't follow baseball, but let's use a baseball analogy. Where are we innings wise, in your perspective, in in that whole? Probably around the, the, in the we are you know in the inning wise we are probably right in the middle. You know, I would say we're in the bottom of the fourth, top of the fifth. Okay, got a long way to go. We've got work. You know, we we still have legacy. I look at things in in generations. We have. We have a, still the folks that are in their late 60s, 70s that are still there. Mm -hmm. And these are the folks that were very, very active and dominant in the 90s and even in the 80s. And they're sitting at the top of boardrooms or, or they're the chair of these companies or they're big investors. When that generation passes, mm -hmm. the generation that came up in the 2000s with the new way of thinking are going to be the ones that take that to the next level. The generation that, you know, didn't grow up in a world where uh, there was no room for women or there was no room for LGBTQ mm -hmm. or there was all of these things that are archaic. And hopefully my kids are going to be part of the future where they go, 
I, I don't see a difference between two individuals that you're an individual. I'm an individual. That's, that's all it is. Yeah. I think we'll get there. I think we'll get there. Let, let's, let's move to sort of the dear Ali component, if, 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 if I may. So first, the first thing I want to ask you sort of, again, two decades of design works, as you look back now, is there anything you would have done differently with respect to building Zymeworks or the path that it's taken up to now? And that could be good. That could be bad. And just as you reflect on where it's gone or for the most part, it was executed pretty well according to plan. You know, it, it's the net. It, it's the, you know, I can answer that question in, in how would it, be more beneficial for me, or I can answer that question in terms of the overall impact and the mission. And in terms of the mission, I can't really think about any course corrections. Maybe there were some fine corrections here or there, but I don't think there were any course corrections. Okay. We have things in clinical trials. We have technology platforms. We created jobs. So I think years from now, when my kids are older, I think they will look at it and say, dad spent, you know, nearly 20 years in something that helped people. Mm -hmm. Not how much money he made or the kind of house we live in or the car we have. That's what I want them to measure me against. And people thought he was a good guy. Yeah. Fairly straightforward, simple things. Right? Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. You're probably one of a, I mean, it's growing, but you're part of a select number of public Canadian biotechnology companies in our ecosystem. What advice would you give for other founders and CEOs who are now sort of assuming a similar status to, to what you've done? And, and I'm not talking the sort of the seasoned ones, the ones who have said this is their fifth company, et cetera, et cetera, but, but the new founders, the ones who now find themselves in a different position than they may have sort of five years, 10 years ago as a scientist or a postdoc or whatever position they may have been. Well, first, you know, when I remember when I first heard the term IPO and I thought it was an exit, it's not, it's just the financing. Yeah. You just, you know, raise money from a different group of people. And the second part of it is for those who are specifically thinking about an IPO or wanting to be a public company, it is a different mode of operating. You have to be patient. You have to be, you have to be resilient. You have to know that there are going to be days where things are going to happen that are out of your control that are going to impact you. And that's going to bother you a lot. Uh, Putin decides to attack Ukraine, the stock market crashes and billions of dollars of value is eroded because he wanted to do that. Not because anything fundamentally changed about your company. Right. And at the same time, on the positive side, you will have access to magnitudes higher capital and, and folks that you ever dreamed of. So there is no, if I had more money, I could do that. You will have access to it. And you have to realize that taking care of your team 
becomes even more important because they feel the pressures now every day mm -hmm. that their neighborhood is going to be talking about the stock when the stock is going up everyone is buying the stock and you know they're happy and when the stock is going down everyone blames you yeah. but overall keep your eye on what you need to do and the mission of your company and the purpose of your company and how you're going to help someone, how you're going to help the environment, how you're going to help kids, how you're going to help patients, how you're going to educate, how you're going to help put food on someone's table, put some clothes on someone's back. Keep your eye on your mission. You stay true to that and not money, if anyone's mission is I need to make more money, well, you need to be a banker. <laughs> yeah. It's great advice. Great advice. Keep your eye on the ball. Yeah. I, I suspect you're going to, you know, you're still going to reign in biotech. It's just a guess. I have no insight into this. Um, but obviously you seem very passionate about it. What areas of biotech are you really excited about for the next decade? There are a lot of technologies coming online. What's really getting you excited, whether it's in BC, whether it's in you, it doesn't matter, but just what's, what's, what's like, it's the like, tech wow. model of, of biotech, the tech side, all the dot AIs that are getting into the space, all the engineers, all the software developers, all the computational mm -hmm. folks that are getting in because they're going to be able to help make sense of treasure troves of data to help that personalized medicine component become more real. They're going to be able to look at the last hundred years of clinical trials. They're going to be able to look at how we've been doing everything in, in uh, human healthcare and go, this is where you've been guessing. This is what the data tells you, the trends, the, the patterns. So you could be more predictive you can be much more focused and you can have better outcomes. In 2020, go back to, to the 1970s. They would think in you know 2021, we can cure anything. Yeah. Right? The movies that you saw, you know, would would see such tremendous, you know, growth in capability. Yeah, we have electric cars, love it. Right? We have Bitcoin and we have faster phones and 16 megapixels in our cameras that we don't care. But fundamentally, some of our issues in racism, in, in health, in sexism, in anything that ends with the ISM has remained the same. Yeah. Capitalism too. All of it yeah. has stayed the same. We live in a world where there are kids that are hungry every day in Vancouver, in Toronto, in Montreal. I, I just don't know why that is, how that is. We have mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Big problem. Big problem. I am excited in, in those that are going to do that, that they're, they're going to help change the world that way. Hmm. Exciting. I'm going to be really interested to see how you sort of evolve over the next five to 10 years. I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. So I'm mindful of time. The final question Ali, I like to ask everyone is, is, you know, healthcare, the health system often gets a lot of flack. It gets beaten down, but the reality is, I mean, you know, 
you work in healthcare system, I work in healthcare system. It, it does some things fairly well. What would it be that sort of if you were to roll forward five or 10 years, we have a new healthcare system, but what do you want to remain the same? What is it that we actually do really well now in healthcare that just shouldn't change? Doctors, nurses, in the beginning of the pandemic at 7 p.m., every day we went out and we banged pots and pans to celebrate these brave souls. And now you have them yelled at, you have them shouted at, threatened over a piece of cloth on your face. I hope those folks that care, that put themselves ahead of everyone else day in and day out, so I can come back home to my kids and you can go to your family. I hope that doesn't change. Awesome. I hope we don't replace them with robots. Because you are in a world where you can't program that. And these days, <laughs> just think about our hospitals, whether you believe in the vaccines or not, or whether you believe in COVID or not. The one fact that remains the same is you go into a hospital, you go into the ICU ward, and you see people there. Yeah. And somebody is taking care of them. I won't walk 10 feet near someone that has COVID, let alone be in the same room with them. Right. Yeah. So I hope that doesn't change. I hope humanity in healthcare doesn't change. I love it. Every time I've been to a doctor, I've gone there scared and I've left relieved. And it's because there's someone who just says, calm down. I got you. I got you. I got you. That's great. I love that. That's, that's fantastic. That's the best way I've heard that. Um, so we're at sort of the top of the hour. Ali, if people want to kind of stay in touch with, with what you're doing, what you're posting, connecting with you, how, how do they kind of reach out to, to all the stuff? LinkedIn. Just say, I, I heard you on the podcast for the mall. And I want to, I want to say, I'm serious. I, I, if, if my, my rule is I will accept a connection with anyone that can draw some sort of a, a linkage to, to something and just say, I heard you that I like to stay connected or I want to talk to you or I want to have a chat with you more than happy to. Wow. You're going to be inundated. All you founders, you heard it. There it is. <laughs> You're going to be busy for the next little while, Ali. But thank you for the offering. That is awesome. Thank you so much again for spending time. I really appreciate uh, you know the, the hour that you've uh, you've chatted with us and all that wonderful information. I, I really do look forward to uh, you know my to my absolute pleasure. My it was it was a lot of fun. As you can tell, I like the sound of my own voice. Um, so I'm happy to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.